Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Also Sport Podcast. We review the 2018 Formula One season with special guest Karin Chandok. The 2018 Formula One season was a dramatic one. Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes again winning the World Championship, but it wasn't exactly easy, even though the eventual winning margin made it look more straightforward than it was. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to look back at the season, first is Karin Chandok, keeper Hello. of the fire. You've just been creating a nice winter fire for us, which looked much better in the, fo- the photo you put on Twitter. Yeah, I've uh, got a poor strategy on the fire front. I think big log at the beginning has gone wrong, so um, we'll see. You any good at fixing it? Not really. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure we could get a fire starter, but it might be quite bad for the uh, for the rest of the room. It looks like you just uh, you just strangled it with a enormous log. It's poor strategy. Poor strategy. Also joined by Ben Anderson, who's, who's been sitting unhappily while the rest of us had the the pre podcast Karen Chondock supplied cake. Well, I don't know about unhappily. I had a jam donut on my way up, so I don't want to don't wanna overcake myself at this stage of the podcast. I think I've long since gone past the point of over-caking. 
<laughs> my uh, my final guest is Jonathan Noble, who's uh, braved the rain on his uh, on his motorbike to to get up here because you're so excited about talking about the season that you said that you're struggling to remember anything that happened in because it's just it's just a massive races at this stage, isn't it? I was actually more excited to see Karun's fire, but he's actually let me down massively because he's he's obviously gone for a Q3 lap on the first. A uh, lap of testing, and it's, it's spectacularly just overheated the tyres. I've gone and I've blistered them already on the outlap. It's very smoky in here too, so we, we may pass out before the end of the podcast. If anything, the fire has got worse since we started talking. It has, hasn't it? That's terrible. Every now and again, we may we may hear uh, Kieran going over there to put some petrol on it or something, just to uh, just to wake it up. Well, let's. Oh, oh, he's off. He's off. He's having a good look at it. He's blowing into the fire, sending sparks flying everywhere. Well, well, Kieran. Busies himself with the. Uh... Don't set fire to yourself, Karun. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a slight improvement. It's glowing a bit more now. We should we should get one of those. You know, you can get those those video things that are just a video of a fire. That this is going to be much better in a video, isn't it? This people are already falling asleep. Ed. Uh, well, they might as well get their falling We're asleep. We're warm enough straight at away. least, aren't yeah. we? That's, exactly. That's well, the point. Well, let's get on with it then. I mean, this season was effectively when you look at the, the final championship points, the wins tally, everything looked a bit like a walkover for for Mercedes and for Lewis Hamilton. But Karina, it was, for a big part of the season, it was better than that, wasn't it? It wasn't just another Mercedes season of dominance in this era. No, really. I mean, it came down to, I think, three or four races in that middle of the year where Ferrari seemed to just lose the plot and everything spiralled from there. I think, you know, Hockenheim was the first big blow where Seb arrived there in the lead of the World Championship by eight points after winning a Silverstone. I think, crucially, after Silverstone, they also looked like they had the faster race car. You know, I know Lewis got pole, but that was a, another Lewis amazing lap. I think they had a, if you look at Kimi on third on the grid, within a hundredth, I think, of, of um, Lewis's pole. And Kimi looked like he was a pole shot as well, if you had yeah, the mistakes exactly. on so I, think, I think after Silverstone, clearly, you know, momentum, I thought, was with Ferrari. Then they went from having an eight-point lead to being 17 points down, or Seb did, after Hockenheim. And then we went to Budapest, and the wet qualifying, again, it fell apart for them. Lewis took pole, and then it just sort of spiraled. And finally, I think I think Monza summed it up. Obviously, Russia and Japan were, again, two bad races for Ferrari, and, and Austin for Seb in particular. But Monza sort of summed it up, really, didn't it? They had the quickest car, one-two on the grid, and yet... Lewis came away with victory and and Lewis forced the issue you know he forced Seb into a mistake he forced Kimi to go too hard too soon after the pit stop and blisters tires and and you know he won that race as a driver and I think that to me sort of summed up the the way that Ferrari's campaign fell apart. I think it was about not maximizing the opportunities when they had them they should have won Germany they should have won Hungary they won Belgium then if they'd gone with that advantage of those points into Monza Monza may well have been a different outcome without the, the desperation from Ferrari and the two Ferrari drivers to race each other on the first lap. And in that phase of the championship, then when Mercedes had a quicker car, Singapore was a you know great recovery. So had a bounce of races where Merck had a slight edge, but it wouldn't have put Ferrari on the back foot, seeing the championship lead going, going away from them. Wouldn't have made them make silly mistakes like with the tyres in qualifying in Japan. So I think you know, it was that phase of the season where they didn't get the opportunities, didn't win the races they should have won. And all the way through, Mercedes very rarely threw away an opportunity that was there. I think Austria was probably their biggest um, shooting themselves in the foot. Well, and Melbourne. You know, not calculating the pit stop time under virtual safety car was was an easy giveaway, wasn't it? I mean, they, you know, they, I don't think as a team they were faultless because there were quite a few strategic mistakes that we saw along the year. 
But ultimately, I thought Lewis was exceptional this year. And he, you know, the fact that he's won the World Championship, Valtteri, I know he had a bit of bad luck, but he is fifth in the World Championship. And that's that's quite a big gap there. It's a similar story to last year, isn't it? Lewis kicking on and with Mercedes in tandem in the second half of the season, leaving Bottas behind and leaving Ferrari and Vettel floundering. It's that capacity, isn't it, to deliver when it really matters. He He's in very in, in control all of the time, but he knows when he needs to put it on the line. So we've seen some of these great qualifying laps from Hamilton. We saw in Russia and Monza, he was able to do passes on Vettel when it really mattered. You know, game-changing, race-changing moves. And in fact, Monza, his driver, I put as the number one race driver of the year because that was one where he did everything right. He turned it on its head, and that did have a significant impact because even picking up on the point John was making about Ferrari struggling a bit they started pushing on with up upgrades and messing about with a floor that didn't seem to really work and actually put the car backwards and sort of that pressure just keeps ramping up on Ferrari whereas Mercedes just just fall back on on, on what they knew I feel like Monza and Singapore were the crucial races there because after Spa even with some of the mistakes that Seb had already made the lockup at Baku you can argue either way he was going for the win and it was early in the season France where he collided with Bottas he won at Spa and Lewis sounded a bit deflated after that race Seb breezing by him on the first lap that story from the first half of the season about the Ferrari engine just being too powerful probably the first time in this V6 era that Mercedes haven't had or felt like they had the most powerful engine and you thought well Ferrari, they haven't been great at Monza previously, but they were one two on the grid. You think they're going to win this race? Singapore, Mercedes never do well. Okay, Lewis can pull something special out, but Seb should win that race as well. And then the championship is his to lose. And we got to the end of Singapore, and suddenly everything spun on its head again. I mean, that was an exceptional lap, wasn't it? Lewis's quality lap. And I think, as much as you know, he would have been on pole whether it was one thousandth or six tenths. I think psychologically that was a massive blow because actually in FP3, Ferrari looked like they were coming back at it and then they just got their tyre prep wrong and you know ended up on the back foot as we went through qualifying. And you know when you get out of a session, you look at the times and your championship rival is six or seven tenths up the road. And so you know, not just one set of tyres or freak weather or anything. That's, you know, they both had two runs in Q3. They both had equal opportunity to do it psychologically, I think that was a massive blow. But also coming after Monza, Monza was a massive Ferrari own goal. They had the quickest car. They should have won it. Arriva Bene should have said to Seb and um, Kimi on race morning, right, Seb, you're winning it. Kimi second. I don't care what happens. This is what this is how it plays out. You two are not racing on lap one. Sorry, Kimi, but we need to win this world championship. And it would have been a totally different story. That would have then, that one, two, would have changed the dynamics going to Singapore. They wouldn't have put themselves under pressure there. That wouldn't have triggered the pressure in Russia and Japan and everything. Yeah. So it was it was a management failure as much as Seb's. But probably failure. shouldn't have let Kimi go on that weekend. Then should they? Well, Maybe exactly. should have saved it. I was going to say they they chose to sack him on Sunday morning, which is just extraordinary. I still find that, and I think the management issue goes a day earlier as well, doesn't it? In qualifying because, you know, on that last run they allowed Kimi to have the slipstream, which we know was worth a tenth and a half, two tenths, around the lap in Monza, and and there was actually a bit of team radio, you know. You heard back, Kimmy on the outlap saying, are we staying in this order? You know, it's, these are conversations you should have on Wednesday or Thursday going, we've got one guy who could win the championship here. We're going to back him in Q3. Guys, this is the plan. And the fact that Kimmy was still discussing it on the outlap of the last run in Q3 is just 
bizarre and, and it's just management and it's the, the the willingness to make the unpopular decisions um you know Maurizio may well have you know faced a huge backlash from Kimi fans and um Ferrari fans saying these two aren't racing that it's a, it's a order but at the end of the day as Toto said after Russia better to be the villain today than the idiot at the end of the season um you know Toto you know it still pains him what he did in Russia you know Bottas lost the one win that he could have had this season, but at the end of the day, you have to do it for the World Championship, and those are the decisions as a team boss you have to take. Do you think that the Marchioni factor played into this at all? Because it, anecdotally, anyway, it seemed that the point that he, or after the point in which he passed away, the Ferrari challenge seemed to unravel. Well, we have to remember that as well. The the sort of rumor mill before was that Arriva Benny would be on his way out, on saying that Marchioni had seen him as the right man in the sort of short term to do it, but didn't see him as the, the long term leader of the team. So. That there is kind of a, a timeline there where it creates an opportunity for Riva Bene to get a bit more involved in, in what the team's doing. He's certainly more vocal, wasn't he? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I'm not sure because at the end of the day, you know, Marchione wasn't the one on the pit ball. And I, I do get the feeling that... He was very involved though, wasn't he? That yeah, seemed. but I think these sort of fundamental decisions of who should tow who around in qualifying and therefore get pole and, and how they should play on lap one you do get the feeling if Christian or Toto were, were managing that situation, they would have managed that better. And I think there's there's something fundamentally, you know, that, that Ferrari haven't done right in that respect, or the way they've they've managed that relationship of of how to back their driver and also managing Seb. You know, Mark Weber made a made a really good point in Austin we were talking about. And he's saying, you know, we'd sit there in this meeting, and he says Rocky would just literally talk to Seb. He would manage Seb and say, no, no, don't worry about that. Don't think about that. That's my problem. Just You just get on with it. And even in the race, if you look at the tone in which the Red Bull engineers like GP talks to Max, saying, listen, I'm listening to you. Just do this, this, and this. Put a sock You're in doing it. a good job, <laughs> but blah, 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 blah. Think about this and the other. And, and that's very much how Rocky used to talk to Seb. And, and you know, Mark made a really good point of not just during the time Seb was in the car, but even out of the car and in the meetings and stuff. You know, he he almost treated him like a small boy who ne- who managed him. But it meant that when the pressure was on, Seb didn't have those wobbles, which, you know, in that 2010 year, when he had to deliver under pressure to win that championship, I think, you know, Rocky managed him that whole way. And I think he's missing that at Ferrari. But shouldn't he be able to manage that himself now? The point of him going to Ferrari and being out of Red Bull and being the age he is, he's meant to have matured into this leader, this great driver that Ferrari can build themselves around in the way that Mercedes has built itself in the last two years around Hamilton. But, but maybe that's just not his character. You know, maybe that's the difference between him and a Michael or him and a Lewis. You know, every person is different. Yeah. I fundamentally still believe Seb is an exceptionally good racing driver. He, you know... He, he he's one of those drivers who won races and championships off the back foot on occasion as well. Um, so, but he just needs to be managed in a different way. Every human being is different. So, I just think that uh, to to back John's point, I think Ferrari haven't fully understood how to manage this driver they've got and how to manage the situation that they got. I think there were times where Seb was trying to step up, and I think. Kind of protect the team in difficult times, and when when there were problems, remember the when they tried to wheel him in the pit lane in Belgium, and they're scraping the scraping the cup the floor on the road, and he was complaining and shouting at them. Then we saw the radio in Monza. So there are times where he's trying to 
step up and help the team and manage the team. And then when things go wrong, he tries to protect them, tries to say the right things. And it, 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 I think he kind of steps up and has a responsibility that maybe Lewis doesn't feel he has to do at Mercedes because Toto's there doing the doing that kind of job, managing the project, leading the management, getting the philosophy. So there's slightly the pair of them approaching it from a slightly different way, which maybe makes Seb be under a bit more pressure. I think what you've got is a good contrast between what happens with Hamilton and Mercedes and Ferrari and Vettel. Hamilton knows how to communicate with the team. The team knows how to communicate with with Hamilton. You you hear little bits in races like where Lewis will say, right, how's that happen? What's going on? Was this the right strategy? And he kind of needs to get that out and then just be told, right, well, it's this. Just get on with it. You know what you need to do. And I think maybe with Vettel, maybe Vettel needs a little bit more management race, but also needs a bit more help when something goes wrong like Germany as as Vettel keeps saying you know it was a really small mistake it was a tiny error he made he wasn't trying to drive ridiculously aggressively on slicks in the wet and as he says he went off in the one place that had gravel and the wall so you can also argue that that's the place you should be being more conservative but you kind of need after that the team to kind of say look just don't worry about it it happens you know honest mistake and and I think there's a impression I get is it's there's kind of a the team wasn't able to eliminate that pressure rather than just helping him just draw a line under it, because you can only do your best thereafter. And I think the fact that we saw so many Vettel errors even after that, none quite as costly as that, but suggests to me that it's just a, there's an environmental issue there as, as well. Now, whether or not Vettel should be able to require slightly less help from the, the team environment is, a, is another question, but I think that's what they need to think about for next season. I think Mercedes has got much better culture as well, that when they've made the strategy mistakes... Um, in Austria, for example, you know James Vowles is straight on and has faith and confidence that he can put his hand up and say to Lewis, I made the mistake, it was me. He knows, A, there's not going to be consequences for that, that the Mercedes team works as a whole. And B, it gives Lewis what he needs to do as well. They understand what Lewis needs. What Lewis needs is to know that it wasn't his fault the mistake was done. The team's coping with something on the pit wall. So it's kind of shared responsibility in team and driver understanding each other which you don't get the impression happens at Ferrari when Ruby Ben is criticising his strategist after Japan qualifying or not dealing with the Monza situation or Germany yeah. where they were they were faffing around with the team order for Raikkonen to move over for Vettel oh, before yeah. he yeah. crashed so that's a clear indication of the lack of decisiveness and the plan it's, that you were talking it's about. actually quite interesting because that one because I quite often on the the F1 vision units listen on to the live radio and actually the Ferrari Raikkonen communication is very odd a lot of the time because there's a lot of stuff where stuff said and he said right what do you actually mean? What do you want me to do? It's, there's a little bit of a lack of clarity there at times. And it wasn't just that team orders call. I, I do agree there was a intention to kind of sugarcoat it and not just say, right, just move out of the way. But I think there's just a, gen, a general communication thing you look at. And you think, well, why, why are you not more clear on this? Just often very mundane and simple things. Things that are requested rather than instructed and that. And so many times this year, you heard Kimmy saying, right, what? what? Tell me, tell you- me what you mean. Do you not think again? That's just a management thing of understanding your driver. You know, do you do you remember back in the Lotus days when Kimi and Grosjean were teammates? Remember the Indian GP? He was on used tires, and Grosjean got bottling behind. And Bat came on the radio and just went, "Kimi, get out of the effing way!" And he went, oh, "Okay, all right then." And he just did. And it, it it's not like he gets offended by it. And the same thing happened in Hockenheim. He just said, "Just tell me what you want," and he did it. And uh, to me, that's just again a team not understanding the guy they've got in the car and out there. There's a lot going on when you're in a Grand Prix in racing. You don't need to overcomplicate it with making them think, what do you mean? Just just give the, the, the clear instruction and that does seem to be where Mercedes has been 
has been strong. Uh, we, we should actually, though, say that there were a lot of Mercedes strategy blunders over the course of the year. I mean, that when James Vowles came on the radio at Austria and said, yeah, that was my error, it wasn't exactly a, some, an isolated incident. So I, I think it was quite impressive that he was willing to do that, knowing millions of people would be listening, listening to it. But we saw multiple races where where just the wrong call was made, in addition to things like Australia, where there was a, an error with the with calculating the, the, the VSC, the, the safety car window. Well, with Bahrain was an example, wasn't it? The Mercedes misreading the Ferrari strategy, feeling that Vettel was going to come in again or run out of tyres and not not instructing Bottas to push and Hamilton to push. And they really left that one too late. In the early part of the season, it felt like Mercedes weren't really firing on all cylinders. They were a bit behind with the car. Hamilton wasn't driving brilliantly. They were a bit of a mess on the pit wall, but... As ever, they sort of pulled it back together again, didn't they? Just when they needed to. And was it was it Singapore in Q1 where Mercedes put Lewis out on the slower tyre to think they could save it for later on? He very nearly didn't get through. Yes, was it Singapore? I'm asking re- Karun because he's got his computer open in yeah, front of him. Yeah, I remember him. it happened. <laughs> Do I remember? That, yeah, he's that, nodding that. no. <laughs> <laughs> False alarm. Yes, no. No, nobody. Nodding, I don't know. I can't remember. No, nobody remembers. Quick, but, Google it. All the races And then we can... Quick but no, I, what, well, apart but from the pole was, lap, this was, a, was forgettable, wasn't it? But yeah. this, this is the this is the what happens in a very tight world championship battle when it's very, very close that small errors can get magnified. And if I am right and the Singapore Q1 issue, then... You know, one car getting through, Lewis getting knocked out in Q1. Makes a big difference. So the narrative of the seasons totally yeah. changed. So yeah, I mean the the you know the Bahrain one, as as Ben mentioned earlier, that was bizarre because I remember on the you know watching it on my phone on lap 21 or something and thinking Seb's going to the end. There's no if he wants to win this race, he's got to stroke it along and make the set of tires last, and he's going to do a one stop and go to the end. And I remember. There's team radio from Mercedes on lap 40-something saying, we think Seb might be going to the end. It's like, wow, that's... It was clear, it was wasn't your, it? It was pretty clear. It's taking you an extra half an hour. Work. And China as well. Remember they, when the two Red Bulls pitted? Yeah. And they, didn't, they had the opportunity to box Lewis, but they, they didn't because they didn't have another set of new tires and, um, I think and they that, didn't come I, in. I think that was a case of them disregarding the threat from behind when they shouldn't have done because it wasn't necessarily about attacking forward because they say oh well we couldn't have done what the Red Bulls did it's like well it's not necessarily about going forward it would have given you the chance to defend and actually had they changed Hamilton they couldn't have changed Bottas because he was past the pit entry by the time it happened so the top two Bottas and Vettel were committed but had they changed Hamilton uh, onto softs he could well have kept the the say uh, the Red Bulls behind and had that happened he'd have then acted as a rear gunner for, for Bottas and they'd, they'd have won yeah. the race so and, and all even, these things even Russia you know the whole team orders thing became a big you know palaver but actually it's why didn't they just box Lewis first and let him undercut Seb uh, undercut Bottas instead they left him out for an extra lap and then Seb undercut him, and then he had to make a risky move to go down. So there's some odd stuff going on. And they, they were really lucky to get away with that because I, yeah. I, I didn't expect Hamilton to get past. How much passing do we see at Sochi? That was a yeah. That was a great bit of, of yeah. work from Hamilton. Uh, to, to answer change Johnny's point earlier, by the way, yeah, you were right. He was P just about got in P P14 in Q1. Yeah, so that that would have been you know that would have been one of the big strategy mistakes of the of the season if that hadn't happened. We may not be talking about a different outcome of the World Championship, but. It would have changed things going into Japan, and then maybe Ferrari wouldn't have felt they needed to roll the dice with the tyres in qualifying. So all these factors, everything all impacts the following race and moves forwards. And the, we must talk about the wheel development, I guess, as well, because it seemed like that made a big difference to Mercedes, the rear wheel 
hub well, or I, I think, like, I'm not sure I understand it fully, but they, they yeah. seem to do a lot of work in that area. And they were talking about traction problems at Spa, not just the Ferrari engine. And then at Monza, they were much better at that. And it seemed to translate through to Singapore as well in, in this crucial phase before they got a bit uh, worried about Ferrari protesting and decided to park it from I mean, Austin I think onwards. at the moment, tyre management and tyre prep is a huge, huge part of the sport. You know, this is too, too much. Too much. Well, just, just, just to be clear of how much a big difference is, just look at Australia, where it's nip and tuck between Ferrari and Mercedes, and then through through a fluke, because Daniel Ricciardo was in his way on the outlap for the Q, last Q3 run, Hamilton's tyres happened to be exactly where they needed to be for the start of the lap, and suddenly he was over six tenths quicker. Yeah. Just, yeah. just not, not a party mode. It was exactly uh, it was just just a, a, a just a basically you flip the switch and suddenly you go from struggling to your miles clear, which is uh, unbelievable. And I think Mercedes. Certainly, as the year went on, seemed to be more experimental, and they seemed to be trying, you know, different things. I, I remember in Canada, um, looking at when they took the blankets off the front on Lewis's car, and okay, Canada obviously got beaten comprehensively by Ferrari, so I'm not saying what they did was right, but saying as early as that point, they were already experimenting in free practice. You know, take the blankets off the rear, thirty seconds. You know, the, you'd see Bono sitting there looking at a at a countdown and then as soon as it got to I think it was thirty or forty five seconds then the front blankets would come off and they were trying all sorts of different things. I mean next year it's gonna be even trickier because, you know, for people at home to understand the 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 regulations are changing. You know, at the moment they can cook the tires to a hundred degrees in the blankets, next year's down to eighty. And actually I think that's why it makes the Abu Dhabi test quite important because when we get to Barcelona for preseason testing it's going to be freezing cold. So actually, the Abu Dhabi test might be the only time to test the 2019 tyres in warm conditions before we get to Melbourne for the first race with the 80-degree blanket temp. And it's it's a painfully dull subject for people at home, and it's one that most people at home, frankly, shouldn't be talking about or caring about. The fire's almost out, so the fire's yeah. bored. But unfortunately, we're going to have to, we do have to talk about it because yeah. it's, it's crucial, so isn't it? crucial to performance and so crucial to, to lap time. I mean, that, that's another reason why Ferrari under-delivered in Singapore, isn't it? They talk about how tyres were just not in the right window. Hmm. And they struggled in Spain, didn't they, with the narrow gauge Pirellis, which made an appearance at a few tracks, but I think are going to be at all tracks next year, aren't they? Is that Yeah, they're going to, to the thinner gauge tires there they're not exactly the same but they're they're kind of related Fair, to yeah. that it's the same family sort of lineage if you if you like so and that threw ferrari completely out didn't they didn't it Vettel had to make two stops in what was a one-stop race for all the other front runners so just shows how when we talk about all these small iterations and aerodynamics and this that and the other and actually the tires still make the biggest difference yeah mercedes obviously played down the significance of the wheel spaces saying you know the performance was minimal and stuff but nothing appears in a formula one car unless it brings performance and you suddenly um, saw in austin hamilton having the same old problems didn't you with rear tire management and have needing an extra stop and they just happened to have parked that design yeah i think, you have, to, to think you have to sometimes be careful because um mercedes like talking about this thing called narrative fallacy where your results are all impacted and you create a narrative out of what's happened and some of these are un- uninterlinked that just so happens that the races they had the wheel spaces on they did very well at and those that didn't uh they weren't so good but they weren't so interlinked because mexico was a different problem to what they were suffering in singapore for example so it's all these uh all these things but there's no doubt those wheel spaces did make a difference because a if they didn't mercedes wouldn't have put them on and b if they didn't ferrari wouldn't have made such a a big hoo-ha about it behind the scenes 
yeah, and it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens next season because they obviously went to the stewards sort of protested themselves for want of a better terminology that's not already what they did but they wanted the clarification <laughs> so the stewards said the design was fine and they still didn't run it until uh, again until Abu Dhabi because they wanted to seal the constructors first so it's going to be interesting to see what happens next season because it's not just that design it's it's what happens if you continue to build on it etc so that's an interesting answer well we should also talk about the, the team that didn't quite get into the championship fight but did win four races Red Bull we'll get into the drivers in a bit of depth in a minute when you will have the chance to destroy my top 10 drivers of the year that's yes. a good way to go through the season but coming into the season Ben there was this hope that Red Bull could be a championship challenging force it's quite hard to remember that now but that, that was the hope they finished strongly last season thinking well maybe the Renault engine is going to be strong enough for them to be in the mix but it was kind of the same old. It was a snipe for a few victories, quickest in Mexico, quickest in Monaco. But beyond that, they, they were third best. Yeah, the four wins were a reasonable return. But really, it came down to the engine not delivering again, didn't it? I'm not saying Red Bull were perfect as a team, but they didn't have the slow start that they had in 2017 with the uh, aerodynamic models not quite matching reality. They hit the ground running. Ricardo felt that he was an outside title contender after winning for the second time in Monaco. But Renault just didn't deliver. There was a lot of promise in the winter that the engine was going to have this much power and be this much more reliable. Kind of the same old, same old, really. And you got quickly into the early part of the season and this MGUK unit that was meant to be on the car even last year still wasn't up to date. And suddenly they're not meeting their targets. And then the in-season updates aren't quite there. They're not reliable. And you're switching between specs and... All of this stuff just adds up, whereas Mercedes and Ferrari hit the ground running and just kept going. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm just looking at, for example, the improvement from 2017 to 18. And Mercedes, still the benchmark, let's say. Ferrari, pretty much the same if I look at the fastest lap across the weekend. Red Bull have improved by about 20% compared to how far down. I think that's the difference between... 2017 and then winning 2018 uh, Max's dominance in Mexico on a weekend where suddenly the air was thinner and the inherent downforce of a car came into play you all of a sudden saw the midfield teams being lapped twice in the race just not being able to unlock aero performance in the thin air and you know in um, Brazil as well I mean the race pace at Max showed was just astonishing and time management we've seen on a number of occasions this year their time management has been so good Austria was another one where the other Ferraris coming at him and he just managed that stint all the way it's it's a it's probably the best balance of the top three cars as well which I think contributes to that it they they never seem to struggle to get it significantly problematic in terms of getting it working it, it was just a car that had a good and they're, they're a team you can believe when they say they have the best yeah, chassis I, on the grid aren't yeah. they and well, I, it, it and looks I think, like it from trackside often as well and I think they, they also are a very good race team. I think, you know, China, two double stacks on the pit stops, faultless. You know, all four of those pit stops were still mega quick, allowed both drivers to have the chance of winning it. Max screwed it up. Daniel didn't took the win. You know, they, they're willing to look at left field strategies. They're willing to do things that other people aren't prepared to do and go long. And yes, they've got a car that's able of doing it, but they're also, you know, they they... They're creative with their strategy and, they, and they're logical. You know, it's at the same time. It's not like it's a completely left-field thing that you throw out there. But they're willing to take the risk, aren't they're they? Knowing they've got very little to lose because there's no also, challenge from behind. You saw a good example they just go for it. that didn't really come into play, but in Abu Dhabi leaving Ricardo out, I know they wanted to get the offset on the tyres, but also 
he was there in a, in a VSC or safety car situation to take second. Yeah. So it was just worth leaving the car. And they did that regularly mm. and it didn't very often pay off, but there was never really a downside to it. It didn't cost them in terms it, of the results. So that, that's what it's good to see. But, but the relationship but, with Renault did cost them, didn't it? Oh, you know, without this, shadow this of a doubt, yeah. issue with the, the fuel supplier and not being able to get time on the dyno that they wanted and their own development, even with their customer engines being held back, never mind this idea that the relationship was breaking down and Renault aren't going to feel minded to go the extra mile to help them. That, that in the end, again, has been the main thing that's held Red Bull back from doing more, even though they had quite a good season compared to previous couple yeah i think you know at the start of the year also max had a variety of blunders in the um, yes you know the various that's probably because the car wasn't where they'd come into the year thinking that if we can qualify second row then we might have a chance on sunday so he's trying to push extra hard and then the, the mistakes and errors overdrives mistakes and errors come in so it became one of those spirals and the performance is there because he's crashed and then it gets worse and yeah he had a bit of a daniel ricardo 2015 didn't he it's like i've had my big breakout season or second one if you like and I feel like this is the year I'm going to be right at the front now and then the car doesn't quite get there and he can't quite match that lower then, expectation and it takes a bit of time for him to adjust but then as much as we had this hilarious situation Ed didn't we we were talking about it in the paddock where after Canada where you know we went to watch at the last chicane and he was exceptionally good through then I thought this is a this is a different max to the one I saw in Monaco two weeks before. And, uh, you know, I remember wrote, I wrote about it in a column that weekend saying he, there was just something different. There was still the aggressiveness, still the confidence, you know, an FP1 or green track, he's still on it. But he was driving at 90% and yet, and therefore not shunting and not spinning and going off and stuff. And yet he was beating down. And I think, and he spent ages saying i didn't change my approach didn't change my approach and then we sort of got towards mexico and went yeah actually i did change my approach which was quite funny but you know since silverstone he's outscored seb by seven points outscored kimmy by okay kimmy had the dnf for the last race but outscored kimmy by 21 points in the in the last 11 races second half of the year and that's a pretty impressive run and i do get the feeling that if the honda move works out for them he's going to be a championship contender now. Well, that's the big question, isn't it? When it comes to Honda, the challenge this year was for Honda to prove they'd be as good as or better than Renault, which they were able to do. So they've got into the back of the Red Bull next year. It's a logical decision, but there's a big difference between being better than Renault and being up there with Ferrari and with with Mercedes. So do we see any evidence this year that Red Bull Honda can be a title contender next year is it a bit early probably next year i remember 12 months ago a certain team at woking was saying that a step up of engine power will be a great transformation for us and we'll be able to push on i don't think it's as simple as putting what's theoretically a more powerful engine to the back of a very good car and thinking you're going to automatically be at the front um don't forget our honda have barreled through no end of um engine steps this season upgrades of bust well through the three engines per season which they won't be able to do it'd be do fascinating to know next what season. the longest distance one of the engines has gone because you need to get a few thousand kilometres out of them well, exactly um, so, so they've, so they've, they've, they've to, been able sorry. to adopt a policy this year to push on um, speed developments which you wouldn't be able to do as a normal car thing we saw running for example the Spexy engine seemed to be pretty decent at the end of the year it won max those races at the end of the season, the B-Spec obviously won in Brazil. So the Renault wasn't far off at the end. And if they could have run the D-Spec and E-Spec and F-Spec as well, where would Renault have got to 
by the season. So you know, well, they we don't, we don't had know a limit what... on the C spec, didn't they? Didn't Cyril say that the C spec was limiting, that was the limit uh, of the current designs? But yeah. so the, the what the the engine that's on the Dyno Invira at the moment is their, obviously their 2019 version, which is a step forward. But if Renault had a, had the same policy as Honda, how far could they have got? I see what you mean. Yeah, this season. Yeah, yeah. So I think Honda may have been flattered by where they got to pace wise, and we haven't seen when you've got to peg it back to make sure it lasts six, seven races, where are they really going to be? Uh, and then where does it fit into the, the concept of the Red Bull? Yeah, I mean, the the update that they brought in Suzuka uh, for Honda, I mean, was clearly a step forward. Um, you know, a couple of people at Orosa said to me in Austin that around that track, they reckon was worth 0.56 of a second. So that's it's an enormous amount. If you think of it in aero terms, you know, finding five and a half tenths is just a colossal amount of lap time, which these days teams are very rarely find with a single update. So it genuinely worked. But you know, when you look at it across the season, last year Toro also had the eighth fastest car and were two point six four away from Mercedes. This year they have the eighth fastest car and they're two point six nine away from Mercedes. So they're pretty much the same. They've spent less money because they've got the Honda instead of the Renault. They kind of are where they are. McLaren, on the other hand, they've gone backwards okay you could argue mclaren stopped development of this car and i know it's a there's lots of caveats to it but last year mclaren had at least they had the sixth fastest car this year they've gone to having the ninth fastest but finished sixth in the championship but finished sixth in the championship which <laughs> says something about the bloke behind the wheel should we start having a look through the, the driver's top 10 because that's a good way to cover off a lot of the the rest of the season it's a good way for us to give you abuse isn't it that's Ed? what that's what it's all about well okay Give me abuse for this. Number one, Lewis Hamilton. Okay. Oh, any, shocking. Is, any, is anybody going to make it? How could you put Lewis Hamilton number one after a season <laughs> like that? Yeah, the, the lack of dissent is, uh, is definitely... <laughs> Let's get to number two. That's going to be much more exciting, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is, actually, because I know it's different to your order. I went with Max Verstappen. Now, my quick, dum, dum, now my, my quick summary is, while the first six races, for the most part, were pretty awful... For the rest of the season, he was consistently strong and he's up against a bunch of drivers who also had some errors and that kind of thing. Yes, Max should have won China. He had a shot at winning in Monaco if he not pranged an FP3, but he recovered from that and he came back a, a better driver. And I would argue that from Canada onwards, he was the only guy who could hold a candle to Lewis Hamilton, hence second. I think I'd agree with that. Uh well, yeah, I know it is, but um, as Karim pointed out, he outscored Seb, he outscored Kimi even with the DNF, but obviously he got taken out down to second in Brazil, should have won that race as well. Um, in a season where Lewis was outstanding and everybody else really didn't have that clean a campaign, I think his was the, the least filthy. I I was torn between what to do for second and eventually I thought, I'll go with Leclerc for a second because I think as a rookie, he was under pressure because he had three wobbly races at the start of the season. If you remember Bahrain spinning in the end of qualifying and it just all of a sudden it was like he arrived here as the next star of the future, next future Ferrari driver. And it's like, oh, actually, it's not working out. But then in Baku, he got his head around how to set the car up. He changed his style. He understood a lot more about how to get it hooked up. And since then, I thought he's been exceptional. I mean, a lot of the time, I know in Q3, he sometimes didn't deliver the lap. I think some of that was because they only had one set of tyres often by the time they got to Q3. And as we've touched on earlier, getting the 
tyres prepped in the right way was tricky. And I, think I, I would say, though, that he was... There are plenty of other midfield drivers in a similar situation. Yeah. And he, I mean, th- this is really being hypercritical of Leclerc, who I think is brilliant that he's gone to Ferrari. He's a fantastic driver, a great season. But no driver strung together their theoretical best qualifying lap less often than he did. He only did it three times. The leader was Vettel on 11 of that. And that only tells part of a story. But while there were some brilliant Q2 laps, actually, Brazil in particular mm. went in the dam. Everyone else had given up. But he was able to to get through. I I would say that. But, but my point that, that, still... that, that's something next year. Yeah, that, that's the thing I most want to see because Vettel is very good at that, and that could make life very difficult next year if he's not able to nail it Q three, but with two runs. But two points. One is I think next year he'll have years of experience under his belt. He'll have a bigger team, more engineers, more more people to support him and and work with him. Hopefully on that. And B ultimately the points get paid on Sunday, and he. You know, there were quite a few races where he was just anonymous, where we just we didn't even see him on the screen. And then at the end of the race, you kind of go, "Oh, actually, got P seven. I remember France was one of them. I think Brazil he had a pretty good race as well. And you just um, he had some bad ones too, though, didn't he? Austria, I think. As, as you, as you can yeah, for a rookie. I mean, well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll wait. I, I had Charles Leclerc down in fifth, which is not a negative. I think he had a phenomenal season. That's a very high ranking for it's a very, rookie very high driver, isn't it? For, yeah. for a rookie driver. And I think it all depends. I did toy with him being a lot. I mean, I would say second, third, fourth, fifth. They're I think that's all, similar to where I put Verstappen for yeah, his rookie it's, season. It's, it's very close together, that that group, because it's Hamilton way ahead. Yeah. So it, it I, I think it almost would look like you feel he's got, to have some, he's got to have somewhere to go next year in terms of moving up. So Because I think he'll have yeah. a phenomenal season next season. But I had Max P3, by the way. If yeah. That. Does the fact that Leclerc was up against Ericsson... Did that factor into your dropping him down to fifth not, in the sense that not so much it's not a mean, stellar teammate to beat. No, but he's he's a handy driver, Ericsson, and Leclerc had the the biggest average lap time for dry qualifying delta to his teammate, the biggest advantage. So that that says something. The second biggest was Alonso to Van Dorn. So I was going to say bigger than Alonso. Although Ericsson did outqualify Leclerc a few times, the overall average was was very strong because Ericsson struggled with the with the tyres. So I I didn't really see it as marking Leclerc down or anything. I think he's a phenomenal driver, and yeah, I, I just think with Verstappen, it's the fact that he managed to sus- be sustained. Brilliant. I mean, I just said it earlier in this after the first half and drove, drove Ricardo out the team. Yeah, and, so after- and, and actually, and actually, I think to to sort of agree with you and disagree with myself. <laughs> <laughs> now this is uh, existentially challenging, isn't it? This edition of the I, podcast. I do I do think the the pressures of Driving with the top three team and a team capable of winning races is different to being in a midfield. Yeah, in Charles's situation, you can't really lose. If you have a great, fantastic performance, you're a hero. And if it doesn't work out, he's driving for a, you're a midfield you. rookie. Yeah, so your heroic performances always stand out. Whereas when you're max, you, you know, being, old, being fantastic is expected. Being phenomenal wins you a race and anything average... Uh, you're being criticised and questioned. So, is Max your I'll, second? I think I'll, yeah, I think I'll agree with Ed here. All right, Max, and I think Max we should second. Say, Despite yeah, the wobbly start to the year, which in any normal season would have put him well down, but you know Seb made the mistakes late on. Uh, Ricciardo had a fair bit of wobbles, and the performance wasn't as consistent as it, as it should have been. But he was flying after six races, wasn't he, Ricciardo? So. It's a testament to Max that he was able to turn that whole thing around. I, I by the end of the season, he was he was by far the best Red Bull driver. You would you would say over the balance of the race. I mean, I in Mexico, was, sorry, in so, Me- Mexico yeah. to me was just phenomenal because 
quality didn't work out. He had, you know, engine braking issues. He he mentioned in qualifying. He was furious after the session, absolutely livid. But in the race, he just did what he had to do. He got the start. He kept it clean. Didn't bang wheels. Didn't break a front wing. Didn't do any of the stuff that I think Max version one pre-Canada might have done. And did in 2017. And did in 2017. But in the race, he pulled a pit stop. I know Daniel was unlucky and the car broke down, but Max was already a pit stop ahead at that point. He pulled 26 seconds. I'd say Mexico is probably the most dominant race performance of the year in terms of just yeah. pulling right at the front. The biggest margin, I think, was Lewis Hamilton in Spain. But yeah, Verstappen was was fantastic. Only looked a great drive to win in Austria and, and loads of really strong performances. Austin, he drove really well. Singapore. Singapore. Singapore, when he, lo- you know, he lost the position to Seb on the, on the opening lap. And then when he, you know, when Seb tried to go down the outside of him, turn seven and got the move done. Again, I was sort of going, oh, he's going to hit him. He's, he's going to hit him. He's going to break his front wing. But he backed out of it. And then made the strategy work for him. You know, Seb pitted early. Max went long, made the strategy work. They came out of the pits wheel to wheel. Again, he didn't biff him off. He just was hard and in the same way like he was with Bottas in Abu Dhabi. You know, bit of wheel banging, but he's a hard racer. And I think that's why people love him. And I think that's one of the good bits about him. Just needs to learn how to be unlapped. Yes. <laughs> well, a vital tool in everyone's armory. <laughs> I, I I have a reasonable amount of sympathy for Verstappen on that. People say he could have got out of the way, but why should he? He's my, the race my, leader. My argument is what he was. He, he was two point nine seconds ahead of Hamilton. Had he let Ocon go, he'd have had to drop back from him. He'd have been in in Hamilton's. He'd been close to Hamilton. The tires would have suffered a little bit. Hamilton might have been able to ambush him. He say, "Well, why did you why did you let that guy past you?" I think Verstappen was perfectly entitled to expect that Ocon. Would have, I, I, would I, not, I would don't. Not have done that. I, I think he should have given. He should have. He should have allowed the fact that Ocon was there. He knew he was there. And even no. if Ocon... I'm not saying Ocon is not at fault and it was, was a, wasn't was an ill-judged move, but with so much to lose there, you can't just turn in expecting the guy who is unexpectedly trying to pass you already to just disappear because he's not going to, clearly, if he wants to make the move. But I think that's the point. He did expect him to disappear because as a race leader, you're going, well, what's this guy doing? He's trying to come around the outside of me. I've gone down the inside. Okay, whatever. I've got rid of him now. And he's already thinking, right, I need to get the line right for the exit. I need to nail the exit of turn three. His mind is already thinking halfway down the straight. He, but he hadn't got rid of him. You say he's well, on the in, he's, he's yeah. gone down the inside and he's got rid of him, but he was there. But, but at that point, he's, he's seeing clear road ahead of him. He's not seeing the forcing does alongside. And, and any race leader at that point would expect the lap car to back out of it. And I think the thing and is, if well, he that, was the, the, that was the, the mistake was expecting Ocon not to be there. I think it's partly. Um, Verstappen's fault, but mostly Ocon shouldn't have put himself in a position to shouldn't cloud turn race two. Leader. Yeah, yeah. Course, I think yeah. it was fine to go have a go around the outside of turn yeah, one. And if he got past at turn one, that's fine. But by that stage, he hasn't got past. Just back out of it. I think that was just silly. I think it's one of those things as well that I know it's unusual when you have someone unlapping yourself. But if you're going to give every single back marker, you have to accept expect a certain standard of driving from every back marker, or you lose half a minute of race. I think, yeah, but I think, it's, I think, it's, I know not, it's not an unusual situation but. to everyone, is it? It's that driver well, in that situation because of well, well, let, who he is. Well, and yeah, what, but let, let's say gone, let's say he'd gone up the inside and expect Ocon to drop out, and Ocon came out not trying to pull a complete pass, but not backed out of it. You know, if you, you could you could leave that margin. I know it, there's some Ocon for Stappen next year, but I think you can't necessarily leave these margins all the time. Just in that instance, but I think I think that's that's just. That's sort of after the fact. 
thing is, you're trying to, an, trying to analyze this from a rational perspective of looking back several weeks on where these things are decided in split seconds and, um, you know, small mistake from Max in not giving him enough room in case he was there um, and expecting Ocon to back out something he wasn't going to back out. But being well aware that this is the guy he's smashed about in casting and various Formula 3 and various other times that history... But shoving match aside... <laughs> uh, yeah, Verstappen's second half of the season or Canada onwards shall we say was outstanding and Brazil up until that moment was no, a fantastic, fantastic race yeah, having charged through in that manner to have led a race no one would have expected F- that fifth to, to first on merit yeah pa- making passes not, not through attrition is brilliant should we move on to number three I went with Fernando Alonso now the, Alonso was quite tricky because there were a few times particularly towards the end of the season where he seemed to lose interest I felt he kind of felt he needed to be in points contention to be his best. But a lot of the time, he was driving phenomenally. Took a McLaren that was on average the ninth fastest car. to six in the constructors. Should have been seventh if Force India hadn't had its points halved, as it were, by the by the circumstance of the team. But I think we just saw him do phenomenal things often with a very tricky car. And also, when you watch an onboard, even in Abu Dhabi, you know, by that stage... Nothing to play for. You even heard him saying on the radio, what's the point of me chasing one point? I've got 1,800 of them. Um, Slightly missing the point. But I've already secured sixth in the Constructors' Championship yeah, exactly. single-handedly. But, 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 what would point? you give for a Formula uh, but, One point? Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> when you watch the, the the body language in qualifying, you know, he he just dominates the car. He just, just rags every, every millimeter out of it. And actually... You know, to, I watched Van Dorn's lap on board first. I thought, wow, that actually looks on it. You know, he looks fully hooked up. You look at the lap time, he's seven tenths off Fernando in Q1 in, in Abu Dhabi. And you watch Alonso's on board. And you just think there's nothing left in the car. And I think McLaren will miss that. McLaren will miss that reference of having somebody drag every last inch out of it. You know, they've got... One driver who's a complete rookie to F1, and they've got another driver who's completely new to the team. You know, Carlos has he's been around now. He's done a few seasons. He's he's actually quite experienced now for a guy who's only twenty four. But they don't have an existing reference, and I think that could be tricky for them next year. What did you make of Alonso's qualifying lap in Japan? Because I think he pointed that one out as. I know he often says that was the oh, best lap he ever. Also, he also best, said this was the, the best season. Le Mans ever or something. Did he say something? Like, this it, is one of the hardest Le Mans ever or something. But but that accepting that, he did... Greatest he did, win, wasn't it? He, yeah. Greatest win at Le Mans ever. He, he, he had everything. Greatest wins, miracle miracle races, miracle Absolutely. laps. And he said, didn't he do it at the WEC race recently as well? Saying how the, the privateers in Shanghai were quicker than the Toyotas. And it was a miracle. I it's a miracle they want us. So he does love a headline. Yeah, he was in in full full nonsense mode after deciding to yeah. leave F one out of but, the car. But we did I th- see that. I mean, that, that determination as well. The Baku driving a car that had half fallen apart. You know, if you watch the onboard, he could barely get it into the pit lane. He actually hit the wall in the pit entry because he couldn't, <laughs> couldn't turn left enough. You know that that just ability to take what he's got and just use just the incredible car control he's got to hustle it around. And that's what made Van Dorn look bad because Van Dorn was driving kind of conventionally well, but. Alonso could just absolutely go. It's like he did with the Ferrari in 2012, which wasn't a great car, particularly early in the season, and just, just absolutely saying, "Right, I don't care about the limitations. I'm going to, I'm going to provoke this car. I'm going to go catch here. it, react it, and just, just live on my wits." And he gets the lap time out of it. So, what, what, uh, 
what made Alonso's season not quite as impressive as Verstappen's. It's the number of times when I think he lost interest. I think three penalties in Abu Dhabi for cutting the track is stupid. He was in Brazil. He was complaining about the asking the team to stop talking on the radio and got the blue flag penalty didn't he? I think yeah. there were occasions when he got pushed off by Stroll at Suzuka which wasn't his fault but he then just kept kept it lit and just charged you know just stupid things like that it's we've seen that in the past when he gets a bit belligerent and just sort of he doesn't he doesn't go slow he just does sort of stupidly overly aggressive things and that for me it wasn't a complete season in that regard that's why I did think about it putting him second but I feel there are I can understand those blank blank those weekends those blanks if you want to put, put it that way but I feel you need to see that that sustained level. That that's the only reason. I mean, he went on a massive F one bashing mission as well, didn't he? Once he decided to go, well, even before he was talking about yeah. how predictable it was. I think there was a press conference before the Spanish Grand Prix where he was compare. He was asked to compare the environment to the World Endurance Championship, and he was saying how the fan access wouldn't work. Look, it's funny. I, I he spoke- used every opportunity to say, "Oh, Formula One is too predictable, and yeah. I know who's going to win, and it's not going to be me." And blah blah blah. Which was rich coming from a guy who was in a championship with basically one team, one can team win. Who <laughs> dominates and wins everything. The, the funny one, historically, though, he's he's always been. You know, it's me fighting against the world. When he, when he remember winning that championship for Renault, he turns up in one of the Monza, wasn't it? Well, no, it was turning out even later in the season, and said I was racing alone out there, and the team wasn't supporting me. And um, so, even when yeah, he's he even when he's even when he's that. even when he's winning, it's always been like this. But I think he'd actually, in the end, it probably got too much saying this was the greatest lap, and this was a miracle performance, and this was my dream. I mean, if he'd come out. Uh, when he announced his sabbatical or retirement or whatever he wants to call it and said, I can't get a competitive car. Winning means so much to me that I don't want to stay in form. I want to win the Triple Crown. I want to win in sports cars. I want anything to be a winner. I think there'd probably be more respect and fans would have loved it rather than, oh, he's talked about being the best again. Well, on that topic, I went to Silverstone Weck round just after his leaving F1 was announced and sort of asked him why. And so he said, well... Yeah, the, this is not the F1 I loved, etc. I said, yeah, but accepting all that, if you you had a competitive car next season, you'd stay. And he said, yeah, but, 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 but F1 this, this, that, and the other. So he's kind of got this very clear narrative. He's 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 trying to push. And some of what he says actually it does hold water. It's it's not nonsense what he's saying. But he's correct about the, the arguments he makes for the predictability and things that need to change. But he's disingenuous in claiming that's the only reason that he's. Yeah, exactly. And I guarantee you, if there's a if there's a competitive car that has a potential vacancy for 2020, he is going to be first on the phone to say, "I'm ready, I'm available." Can you well, he was on test? the phone of Christian, wasn't he? Or Flavio was on the phone of Christian as soon as um, Daniel went to Renault. Well, that was an interesting mess, wasn't it? Because you had claim and counterclaim at Spa that he'd had an offer, and the team was saying, yeah. "No, we offered him a drive in 07 or 08, but he yeah. didn't want it." But I mean. I, I completely forgot that he's actually not said he's retired. He's gone on sabbatical. Sabbatical, totally, yeah. Until you mentioned it, I totally forgot about it. What is it about McLaren world champions not being able to just quit? Hakkinen, Jensen, well, they're all going on sabbatical. Man- 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 Mansell still hasn't retired. He still hasn't <laughs> yes. retired. He well, could be I, available. I think there's a... <laughs> all world champions struggling to quit McLaren. <laughs> I think there's there's a realistic chance Alonso will be back because firstly, there's the, the more unlikely one, which is McLaren gets his act together in the next few years, and they might try and put him in. The other one is, you never know what happens. Somebody, you know, remember what happened with the driver market when Nico Rosberg unexpectedly retired at the end of 16? Suddenly, a top team might need a top driver. You never know. And even though the top teams have been a little bit nervous about 
Alonso. You never know. Circumstances change. You'd never have imagined Alonso going back to McLaren. And yet it happens. So I think when you've got someone like that on the sidelines, okay, he's not he's not young, so he's only got so many years left, but it's that there's more than a, a slender chance that the circumstance might arise where someone phones up and says, actually, we need you. I went to the test in Bahrain, the Jimmy Johnson, Alonso switch. I mean, there were two things that came out that day. The first was he wasn't supposed to test the Formula 1 car that day. Jimmy was supposed to do it all. It was only Fernando does the NASCAR. He saw the car there and demanded... Uh, I think I need to go and set some benchmark times and get out there. So rip, they were ripping stickers off. And Zach told me that they bought a spare extra set of tyres there, knowing that Fernando might want to jump in the car and hadn't told Fernando. So he was there. I made it 17 hours after stepping out the F1 car in Abu Dhabi. He was back in and, and loving it. And Tesla NASCAR, I got the impression he didn't like it very much. That I think it was too slow, too cumbersome, too heavy. I think it made him realise again. Those cars on a road where, court, on a road track, and, not, and they weren't the right, weren't, they weren't the right tyres. So you got the impression speaking to him that he's still a man who wants to, you know, he loves racing and loves racing cars, but this is about top level. And I think when the WEC Championship's done, when Indy's finished next June, July time, he's going to be sat on his sofa, itchy feet, and focus. You'll be on what's the quickest F1 car I can get back in for 2020. But which one will that be? Can you see the current management set? the top teams hiring him because they've all said no repeatedly and they're all necessity, static, aren't Necessity they? might force it. I mean, let's say... What necessity? Well, because- well, let's say at Red Bull, let's say, hypothetically, Pierre Gasly's terrible next year. I don't think he will be. He's a quick driver. Let's say he just can't hack it. And they say, well, we don't need him. And then let's say Max Verstappen falls out with a team, decides he wants to... What, what you know, it- you know some, something can happen. Or, you know, you don't want it to happen, but we saw with Robert Kubica, with his accent, things, things can happen away no, but- from the circuit to change. So there's often a situation, and you're sat there thinking, well, actually, either we've got to take someone who's a bit unproven, or we need a team leader, and there's this guy we know can win championships, and we can get him in, but then you do it. Well, what about Ferrari? Because they've, they've hired Leclerc. You know, as this young upstart who's going to, it's not the choice that Seb had. You know, we all know Seb wanted to keep Kimi and it was a nice safe zone, a good little two, three, tenth gap, good number two. All of a sudden, he's out of a shaky season. They brought Leclerc in. What if Seb has another shaky season? You know, then do they do they actually turn around? The management now is not the one that Alonso fell out with in 2014. So, totally different bosses. You know, he went back to McLaren, which makes going back to Ferrari seem much more plausible. Really, yeah, it's a cakewalk, isn't it? Well, when, you're, when you're that good, there's there's always the, the possibility, and I hope we will see him again. Uh, number four, I went for Sebastian Vettel. Now, yes, too many mistakes could have won the championship, but let's not forget the good things he did as well. Some really good wins, Canada, for example, some very strong qualifying performances, and I think he was pretty good at getting the most out of the car in. In qualifying as well. In fact, nobody put their theoretical best together more than him. And I think that fact that he was under that pressure and you would have said mid-season he was the favourite for the championship. Yet, ultimately, you'd say, do you know what? You should have made a much better fist at this championship through away little points. But still, there was a lot of good as well. I think a lot of the... I mean, Germany was the, the low point for him. And I think probably difficult thing for him to deal with. And I think if you'd reflected on the season up to that point, if Ferrari had lost it through Germany, I think he'd have dropped further down. But post Germany, a lot of the mistakes were team management uh, errors and then forcing him into situations, you know, he shouldn't have, have been in. Um, and there were some great performances. Bahrain was a great win, for example. Um, fantastic performance and great qualifying laps. 
pulling stuff out. So there were some were some good highs, but unfortunately, as is you know in life, you don't sometimes acknowledge the mistakes much easier than to do the successes. Where, where did you have Vettel in your list? Number four. Number four. I, okay. I wouldn't disagree with that. Well, we're really. in agreement. I mean, at the end of the day, I think you're right. You know, um, Canada was exceptionally good. Bahrain, um, Johnny mentioned there. He Spa, made the he passed Hamilton and won. Yeah, he made the strategy work in Bahrain. I thought that was his his best one, managing those tires in the long second stint. I think he pinned it on lap twenty or something, had to really stretch it out on a weekend where the Mercedes couldn't. Um, he made it work for him, and I think, yeah, he he did do the job on several occasions. So he he probably warrants a place at number four. And also, yeah, he had, he, he had so. the third biggest dry qualifying average advantage over his teammate as well. And you go to, if you go to Germany, if Ferrari had come on the radio to Kimi, he said, right, out of the way, Seb's coming through. And, you know, Seb had steamed off up the road rather than losing all that time. He wouldn't have been so obsessed with, you know, Lewis closing the, the gap on him. So all these, everything's all interlinked and big scenarios can change very rapidly through the smallest of things that aren't under any of your control. Strong. I think it was a strong start in tandem with Ferrari making a strong start. And then it just kind of slowly wilted away yeah, as, definitely as the yeah. panic set in. The errors in the second half, he's not accept that there was some extra pressure there from decisions going against him, bad qualifying performances or results rather. Um, but I would say probably it's a low four, isn't it? If you've got those top three that you've already mentioned, I don't think he was quite as strong or as impressive relative to his teammate, particularly yeah, as those other three. So, But I can't think of a driver who deserves to be above him in the list. We've already mentioned Leclerc is in fifth in mind. Is anyone going to argue he should be lower or object to him being... Fifth. I mean, it was a cracking rookie season, wasn't it? Yeah, I wouldn't object. No. Good More choice. Number six? Yeah, number six. Well, this one was tricky in many ways. I went with Nico Hulkenberg in the end. The reason being... B-class champion. He was the B-class champion. He, both in terms of virtual unofficial points in Class B and, and in the real championship position. And yeah, he was he was very often at the front of the midfield. A few t- A few mistakes. Crashed out in Baku. He always does. A few practice crashes. Spa start when he drop kicked Alonso and <laughs> So those are the things that stop him from being at the top because there's still a mistake in him. But overall, you know, he was the he was the superior. I mean, Carlos Sainz Jr. is a very good driver. Right, signs highly, but by all indicators, Hulkenberg was was stronger than him over over the season by a by a bit of a margin. Even though Sainz was a bit unfortunate, but yeah, I think I mean, Hulkenberg overall in the midfield. I agree. I mean, 13-8 in qualifying and he outscored Carlos by 16 points as well, which is, you know, it's not insignificant. I know Renault had all sorts of reliability issues, so it it's sometimes skews the picture, but you just got the feeling on Sunday he was going to be there to deliver and score those solid points. I mean, I think next year is a great year and a great opportunity for Nico Hulkenberg because actually mm. it's a no-lose situation. You know, he's got an an A-list driver coming alongside him, but he's the incumbent of the team. The team loves him. You know, Alan Pomain and Bob Bell and Cyril often talk about what a great asset he is to the team. There's no lose, is there? You know, if he beats Ricardo, suddenly his stock value has just gone up. And if he doesn't, well, that's why they brought Ricardo in. So he's he's got a great opportunity next year. Yeah, no lose for the team, certainly. And quite a risk for Ricardo because, I mean, you've said this many times, Ed, but Hulkenberg is a driver because I think because of his kind of relaxed demeanour, he seems like he doesn't care too much. He's quite easy to underestimate, but consistently he's so quick and 
in that, that Formula 1 way, which is so separated between the top three teams and the rest, he is consistently one of the best performers in that, that second tier. Ultimately, Sainz underestimated him. Yeah. Thought he'd, be, he'd have the better of him at Renault, and it hasn't, hasn't proved to be the case. Um, number seven, Daniel Ricciardo. Some great, some great highs, not as quick as Max Verstappen, but also constant penalties and engine problems and, well, the car problems as well. Could he have been a bit higher? Given that his first six races were outstanding, or at least I toyed a with it. Of them were, and as you say, unreliability hurt him a lot, didn't it? The cursed car. Yeah, it was a bitty, a bitty season that never really got going. Um, you know, Bahraini could have been well up there if he hadn't stopped. Was it the first lap or second lap? He pulled over, shut down, shut down. Just endless, you know, good results taken away from him. And I think when you, you hit that run of poor luck, it's then much, very much harder to your good days get harder to rebuild the momentum up. And if the, if all you're getting is good result, good result, you're lifting yourself up and up and up. Whereas when you're having frustration after frustration, it's a real effort to pick yourself back up again. So I think just a season that never got going. I mean, Monaco was fantastic, you know, truly exceptional. Um, and forcing, you know, force Max to make that mistake that turned it all around. And then to have lost the, you know, your, your energy recovery system and be, uh, struggling for power and holding everything up great great performance i think i suppose the, the the thing that lets ricardo down is that once max got his act together after that race he never really saw him again did he, that, he was always behind him yeah that's the thing pretty to, much yeah to me i wouldn't i'd have ricardo another place down i'd actually put ocon ahead of him i think Ooh, yeah just to be different i i, I think yeah, the first six races were great, but it's a twenty-one race season, and which means that for more of it, he wasn't great. Because he, he was he was the second best Red Bull driver over the season, unquestionably. And Verstappen, you know, okay, Daniel dragged it back in the last few races, but I, I remember I think it was heading into the um, sort of uh, Mexico. Yeah, the last three heading into Mexico, he was over three tenths down on. Max on the season average qualifying, and, and that's only counting the races where they both qualified and didn't have penalties and didn't have problems, blah blah blah. So he was over three tenths down. Even at the end of the year, you know, I've still got him down at just under two tenths. So he pulled it back a little bit, but he got hammered for pace by Max. Even Abu Dhabi, frankly, you know, Max. Think of it on lap one, he was way down in P eight, P nine, something like that. When the other the the engine went into a safe mode and was clipping the energy. And then Max actually had the worst strategy because he started on the hypersofts. He was helped by the safety car. But he still ended up beating Daniel and holding him off at the end. And On one of Daniel's stronger tracks as well. Yeah. I and the I, season I, before I just, Abu Dhabi. Ricardo to me, really I, just, I would have Ocon ahead of Daniel, I think, in that position. Well, well, Why went, don't you then, Ed? Well, it, it's, we can see it's, uh, it's fairly small margins because I've got Ocon in eighth, one place behind Ricardo. Um I mean, again, it's very, very close. I could argue for them to be in either order. Ocon was the, even though he didn't score as many points as Perez, he was the slightly quicker Force India driver by a a small margin, but consistently so. Had some very strong drives. Monaco stands out where he took not the fourth fastest car to to best of the rest uh, position, primarily thanks to exceptional qualifying performance. A few mistakes from Ocon, but otherwise a, a, a strong season. And I think, yeah... To be honest, it's it's almost a coin toss between which ones. He did score thirteen points less than Perez, though somehow. If he doesn't drive into Raikkonen at the start, if him and Raikkonen don't collide at Baku, 
then Ocon will probably have been... Well, that, that's the points, basically. So I think it's one day to start it. That's the race that most upset him, isn't it? Yeah. I think, I mean, he, said, I think he said it's the, that's the last time or the most recent time he cried because he felt that that podium, that was his for the taking. Yeah, I mean, he threw it, was, it away. It was, a, you know, getting cut tangled up with Raikkonen wasn't necessarily the best idea. But <laughs> as we did see later in the race with Perez, you could you could be ahead of a Ferrari. Actually, he was post. unlucky because Perez biffed him off in Singapore as well, didn't he? On yeah. One. yeah. And then we saw some other things like Mexico. He lost his front wing. The thing in uh, Brazil with... Uh, it wasn't ideal. And, and the first few races of the season, he was struggling a little bit. But by and large, you know, Ocon is exceptionally good driver. And if Force India was making a completely dispassionate driver decision, regardless of other factors, then it would be Ocon in the car rather than Perez. And Perez is a very, very good driver and yeah. undoubtedly should be on the grid. And 16-5 in qualifying, Ocon beat him, which is... Yeah, says that's a lot. resounding, that isn't says it? A lot, and it? even if the average was small, it was just under a tenth. That's still significant. Over it, it, It's not noise of data. That's a consistent outperformance. That's him meeting his targets then, isn't it? Because yep. I think that's what Mercedes said they wanted to see from him this year. Although he didn't obviously get the nod in the championship. Clearly he was faster. But no drive Yep. for next year. So yeah, Daniel Ricciardo 7 and Esteban Ocon 8. No one seems to object too much. I went Pierre Gasly 9th. Ooh, I, I would have gone Kimi. Just because... Well I, well, I went Kimi 10th, so that's... Okay. So again, we're uh, we just... Well, I, I just think because... Kimi you two have copied each other's answers and then just... Shuffled them around. around to throw us off the scent. <laughs> well, we... Yeah, I don't know. I just... I, I think Kimi, first of all, he was closer to Seb, actually in terms of time delta, than perhaps I expected for a guy who, you know, he's he's been told he's flicked by Ferrari. He's... It would have been easy for Kimi to have one of his wobbles and just lose motivation and just drive around in P6. But actually, he he got himself together. You know, across the season, only I say only, but it's two tenths away from Seb, which is less than Daniel was away from Max, which says something. And I actually thought in Austin, he he won that race. You know, he, Aust- he genuinely Austin was, Austin did. Was he he, dro- he and. You can't take that away from him. And but what about all the ones he didn't? You know, well, the, the, yeah, he had a decent Aust- run of podiums. Austria, Silverstone, if he qualified, Baku, if he qualified. You know, there's so many. Well, that's why he's ninth. That's yeah. why he's ninth and not fourth. Make, oh, the, yeah. make the case for Gasly being above Raikkonen. It's a Ga- very Gasly, convincing case, Karun. Thanks. Ben. I mean, Gasly was in the unfortunate situation that Torosso is an erratic team, and so it's quite difficult to be consistently strong there. Carlos Sainz maybe is the one in the past got closest to being that, but. There were times when he really nailed it. You know, Hungary and Bahrain are the obvious ones. They were they were Grand Prix winning drives in the midfield, effectively. Really outstanding. We've got everything right. Strong performances in the race in Monaco, even if qualifying wasn't wasn't great. And then he had a few uh, races. Spa was strong. You know, he, he he's in a very congested part of the field in slightly tricky circumstances. Yeah, he was he was able to get a decent haul of points. Outperformed Brendan Hartley pretty well, although the gap the the raw pace gap isn't as big as people might think, but always when there was a split to be had, like there was a small amount between them in Q1, Gasly would be the right side of it. Brendan Hyde would be the wrong side of it. So I think Gasly had some really good peak points. And I think ultimately he's a driver who, he's a rookie, so you, you allow a few more mistakes um, and that kind of thing. So And he beat his uh, teammate, yeah. as you pointed out, whereas Kimi didn't. Yeah, I feel if Raikkonen had had as many sort of peaks as Gasly had, he'd have more than one win. I think that's ultimately the thing. But what I would say is Raikkonen did... Outscore Bottas. He was the which, best of the top team number yeah. twos, wasn't he, I we, think, this year, which uh, we haven't been able to say before. To a point, though, I, th- I think probably Ricardo overall, that's a ranking I probably overall. But I, I think 
Raikkonen was just it was a good consistent. Oh, I meant championship contending yeah. top team. He, he, not he picked up lots and lots of points, which is what they needed. I'd like to have seen a few more th- times when he really strung it together. You know, he's a very experienced driver, so I'd expect to see that happening. Just too many little mistakes in qualifying here and there. That, in a season where he could have had many, many, many more wins. And ultimately, it was his speed that caused, triggered all the problems at Monza. Because if he was, <laughs> if he'd been slower, it wouldn't have been the problem politics on Saturday and the problem on Sunday. That's so. one of his best drives, wasn't it? I thought that, mo- that move on Hamilton to retake the lead into the second chicane, like round the outside. That's the feistiest Kimi we've seen yeah. in this yeah, period get, of his career, I think. some good moments. But then again, for example, Austria. If he didn't make the mistake on the first lap, yeah, he wins. it's true. That was and let's a, not forget, he's Ferrari's most recent world champion, most recent winner and most recent pole position man. That's very true. Yeah, well, he, in the last seven races, I think he and Vettel basically scored the same amount of points. I think Vettel, thanks to Kimi retiring in Abu Dhabi, scored one more point. But... It was strong, a strong end to the season. I, th- I think Raikkonen's had a good had a good season. But I think he actually, deserves to be in the top ten. Yeah, certainly. Actually, even even bigger than that, Ed, because if you look at uh, take away Abu Dhabi, the DNF, but between Hockenheim and Brazil, he outscored Raikkonen by four points. Yeah. Uh, outscored Vettel by four yes. points. Yeah, which is good. So he'd actually had a very good second half of the season compared to Vettel. Or did Vettel have a really shocking second half? Whichever way you want to. I just, I just like to see a few more. I just like to see some more peaks when he strung it all together, really. But still, still a good season. And I would say, not bad for an old bloke. The standard of drivers is very, very high in Formula One. There were, you know, there there were people just outside that who were strong top ten contenders, and you sort of sit there and think, well, here's the list of drivers I want in my top ten. Oh, there's about fourteen of them. (laughs) So drivers like, you know, Valtteri Bottas, he did have a disappointing season overall, but. He certainly should have had two wins, Baku and Russia. Could have had Bahrain if they'd woken up early on China. the wall. China. He undercut his way past Vettel. He could, he could be sitting on, if you're generous, could be sitting on four wins. Completely transforms the view of him, but, certainly. But he faded should, away so much worse that, compared yeah. to Hamilton than Ricard, Ricardo did compared to Max. I'd agree with that. And, and ultimately, he did the cardinal sin of Bottas this season is he didn't cover Raikkonen's points. So let's say Vettel had won the World Championship by one point. Um. But I think if Bottas had won, could have won Bahrain, but it was really, if he'd won China and won Baku and had been leading the championship at that point, then I think the season the season pans out in a totally different way. Because at that stage, Lewis hadn't really hit his best form, and then suddenly the you know Lewis starts. Oh, what's going on? Bottas is doing so well. So would you have Bottas in the top ten? Because uh, it seems that the contenders who've been eliminated yeah, are would, Bottas, probably would Perez, and Sainz. Bottas, Perez, and Sainz are the three. I'd put Bottas above those two because I think he was. When you when you dig deep down, once you've got to understand that when he's realised the championship is gone, then the whole mentality and approach to season has changed. You're put on the back foot. Everything you've lost, you start losing confidence. Um, but I think it all was dictated by those that run of Bahrain, back uh, China back. But but equally, that didn't happen to Kimi though. You know what I mean? Like Kimi knew, well, probably by even before then, that he wasn't going to be the championship contender. But I also think Kimi didn't come into the season thinking he was going to win the world championship. Like, I think Bottas was, came think into Bottas the year, did? yeah, utterly convinced that I can nail it and I will do it. And I think yeah, I think first he four or five, first four of our races, the form was there. You know, it's not a big change of circumstances to win uh, Bahrain, China, Baku, be leading the world championship at that stage. Everything's behind you. Your confidence is up and you're away. Uh, and I think when they didn't happen, you've got A, that disappointment to deal with and B, you're on the back foot points wise. And then suddenly your teammates hitting great form. Yeah, Barcelona's when Lewis, Lewis really smacked at home and then 
then it just went from there, wasn't it? From really that's the thing, then is it? onwards, they had no, no look. Yeah, things like in Austria, you know, everything's looking great. You're tearing away and the um, car breaks down and you've got an engine penalty because of all that happened. It's just a bit of a Ricciardo season, really, of things just spiral out of control and you can't pull it back. That's one of the reasons why I wanted him in the top 10, but Matt wouldn't let me. Um, <laughs> in the, in the, it's, it, and it's very, you're very exposed when you're at the front and he's up against a phenomenal teammate. So well, I think, I think, about I think the, quali- a better, the quality, of, quality of Formula 1 this year, that, you know, he's been such a fantastic fight from... So it's such a shame the gap between the top three and the rest is so big. Mm. But irrespective of that, the fight from seventh place down to kind of seventeenth no, has been yeah. fantastic. Well, even, yeah, drivers we haven't mentioned the two Haas drivers had variously. I mean, ultimately they didn't have complete seasons. Kevin Magnussen started off very, very strongly, had a good season. Roman Grosjean, once he got his head sorted out, he was eleven Q threes out of twelve. No one got in Q three more from the midfield than he did. But he wasn't ever really a serious threat for the top ten because of the mistakes he made. But you know, it's it's a very very deep field in terms of in terms of quality. I would say, which is a positive thing. It's what you want to see. Yeah. So if we, we absolutely. All, so it sounds like everyone's there's no any, there's nothing massively out of out of line. Nothing. Who was, th- was tenth on your tenth list? Tenth was Raikkonen okay. for me. Yeah, I don't think I could argue a case for the guys who've missed out yeah, to, so be, I mean, to be in there. Paris, I mean, Magnussen had a great start to the season, yeah. but as Grosjean found form, he faded away. It's just slower than Grosjean. Grosjean was terrible at the start of the season in certain races. Until, until Ricard, wasn't it? When yeah. He, remember when he shunted in Q3, Ricard? The worst thing about that. Then, then he went on a brilliant run, as you said, towards, towards the end of the season. Drove, drove for his career, though, didn't he? That yeah. little spell around the summer where he knew that his drive was under threat. He pulled it together the team renewed his contract and then suddenly Grosjean calmed down and you saw the driver that we all and know he can be. I think that figure, 16 Q3s, yeah, was, was impressive. impressive. From, uh, was impressive from Grosjean. And 11 8 against Magnus at the end. I yeah, think yeah. at one point he was down it was something like 8 2 or something. Yeah, it was 9 3 or something. Yeah, like yeah and, and I think if he starts as, if he can, always the thing with Grosjean, isn't it? If he can next season be like that all year, He'll be phenomenal. We know how good he can be, but uh, it's frustrating. But that, that's what made him in this company, not top, not top 10 con- uh, contender. And yeah, Perez, very, very good. Perez is the one, for, I think. Cause, I mean, the Hass drivers cancelled each other out, clearly. Science was beaten by Hulkenberg and, as you said, underestimated him. Bottas, you could argue either way, but he was less impressive in that top battle than Raikkonen yeah. um, relative to his teammate. But what about Perez? Because he did beat on in the championship yeah. and the pace gap was very close. So. I, I wanted him in the top 10 ultimately because I think he was very, very strong. Mass again. But a mass, yeah. But ultimately, Ocon, I think if that qualifying victory for Ocon in terms of head-to-head wasn't so overwhelming. Is that, is that the, the, key, the key thing? Not necessarily the key thing, but you, you look at it and say, well, who's actually the quicker Force India driver? And it, it was Ocon. He was overall the better Force India driver by a small margin. Perez is a very dependable, very good Grand Prix driver and, and yeah, Baku was fantastic for him but again the point situation could have been very different without that Ocon Perez collision so there's a bit of a emphasis on one on one sort of race because of the position they, they finished in it, unlucky for him ultimately because I would say you know there, there's there's probably 13 drivers who should be in the top 10 <laughs> but my old arch enemy maths won't let it happen <laughs> damn it well I think we've we've probably uh, talked quite enough uh, about the uh, about the season and we've we've Ended up agreeing. Karin uh, Chandok's fire is not in good health. It's it's making some fire noises, but uh, not very uh, not very good. And uh, Karin is offering to make us some more tea, so that's uh, very positive. So we'll leave very you kind, Karin. 
<laughs> so please head to autosport.com for all the latest news and information on the world of Formula One and the rest of motorsport, our plus subscriber area, where the world's best motorsport journalists will offer for a small fee all sorts of in-depth columns, features, interviews, even occasionally Mr Chandok himself turns up uh, writing there. Also check out sister titles, F1 Racing Magazine, out monthly and motorsport.com. And if you fancy a flutter, perhaps you could put a put a bet on Karun Chandok to make a racing comeback next year, odds on that would be long, then download the Pit Stop Betting app. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.